You can be seated. Before we pray together, it's a great joy to ask you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. Go ahead and turn in your Bible there to Romans chapter 1, or navigate on your device, or open your Roman Scripture journal, or if you need the black pew Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 939. I'm so thankful that you're here this morning as we begin this sermon series through the greatest letter ever written. And I hope by the end of this year, the pages of the book of Romans are worn out in your Bible. Before we pray together, I want to issue something of a challenge that will, I hope, fuel our prayers as we begin this study. In J.I. Packer's fantastic book called Knowing God... In chapter 22, Packer begins with this sentence. Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of Scripture. Packer then quotes Martin Luther who said, Romans is the clearest gospel of all. And he quotes John Calvin who said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. Packer then summarizes the significance of Romans by saying something that I want to launch us into prayer together at the beginning of this series. Packer says, and it'll be on the screen, Packer says, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. When the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, when the message of the book of Romans gets into a church's heart, there is no telling what may happen. Throughout the history of the church, every, almost every known awakening or revival can be connected to someone being gripped by the message of the book of Romans. Whether it be St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, or Jonathan Edwards, the book of Romans seems to always be the spark that sets the movement of God in motion. And so as we embark on studying this glorious letter, we need to take some time to cry out to God to teach us and mold us and awaken us to the message of the book of Romans. And as we pray together, I want us to pray not just that we will understand Romans, we need help for that, but more than just grasping what Romans is saying, I want us to pray that we will be gripped by its truth, that we will be mastered by its message. And so, no formalities here, no just sort of pretense, let's just pray. Let's just cry out to God as a church, as we embark on this study, no telling what may happen. God knows what could happen, and God knows what He wants to happen in our church, and our lives, through the message of the book of Romans. And so let's just pray together and ask Him to open our eyes and then, God willing, we'll 
look into these first seven verses of the book of Romans. Pray with me. Oh Lord, oh Lord, I don't want to do this without you. I do not want to do this without you. No desire to be here and do this if you're not in it. I don't want to preach through Romans. I don't want to say just a bunch of true things just to be saying it. God, I want you and your presence and your power and your glory to flood this place. God, would you, would you, we don't want to do it if you're not in it. We don't want to do it. So God, would you fill us? Would you help us? Would you enable us? We cry out to you. We need your help. We can't understand these things on our own. We will create all manner of problems and errors and heresies on our own. We need you and your spirit to open our eyes to the truth of your word. And I need you to fill me with your spirit in such a way that I would declare the truth of your word. Not just declare the truth, but to say it in a worshipful, helpful way. So Lord, would you meet us as we study the book of Romans? Would you meet us? Would you speak to us? Would you inflame us? Would you allow Romans to be the spark that creates the awakening in our day? Would you allow this little church here on this corner in this little city in this little part of this world, would you start an awakening here with us? Just send a, a reformation that would, would resound to your glory in all the world. That Christ would be known and praised and seen. God, start with us. Start with us. We know, what we're, we know some of what we're asking. We pray you'd break us. We pray you'd humble us. Teach us about our sin and how depraved we really are. Teach us about what you've done to redeem us and save us so that we might have a message, a hopeful, joyful, serious message to proclaim to this world. Oh God, help us see. Help us behold. Help us know. Help us to be gripped by, to be mastered by the truth of the gospel of Jesus through your servant Paul and his letter to the Romans. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for it being translated into our language so that we can understand it. Thank you for the faithful men and women who have laid down their lives, who have given themselves to making sure we could have this book open in front of us. Thank you for inspiring this letter. Thank you for all the ways you've used it in church history, even to get us to this place. We pray you'd continue to use it in our day. Lord, we need you. We are desperate for your help. Help us to see, help us to behold, help us to study, help us to memorize, help us to meditate on your truth in the book of Romans. We pray all of this for the glory of our King, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the reason the book of Romans is so powerful and has been used of God to spark so many awakenings in the history of the church is very simply because Romans is about the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At its heart... Romans explains and exalts in 
the good news of King Jesus. And starting with this very first passage, Paul declares the truth of the Gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. And so with reverence and joyful anticipation, let's, let's consider this introduction, this greeting to the book of Romans in verses 1-7. through seven. Romans chapter 1, verses 1-7. through seven. Follow along as I read God's Word over us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. May God captivate us by its truth. These first seven verses, the book of Romans, are one long complicated sentence in the original in which Paul introduces himself and his message. This is the longest greeting of all of Paul's letters. Paul is a servant of Jesus declaring the good news about Jesus. And I want to highlight five truths about the gospel that Paul proclaims in this introduction and greeting. Romans is about the gospel, the good news about how sinners can be reconciled to God forever. This gospel, this good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so what can we learn about this gospel from the very first passage of the book of Romans? Five truths. Number one, the gospel originates with and belongs to God. The gospel originates with and belongs to God. So in verse 1, Paul introduces himself to a church that he didn't plant and he had never visited. How he introduces himself to people he has only heard about tells us a lot about Paul. Notice in verse 1, he gives three descriptions of himself. Who is Paul? First, he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he is called to be an apostle. And third, he says he is set apart for the gospel of God. A servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now what strikes me about this description isn't so much of what Paul is saying about who he is, but it's rather who he's sharing who he belongs to. You see, it's not so much about Paul, these descriptions, as to what God has done for Paul. Yes, Paul is an authoritative apostle, who saw the risen Lord Jesus, he was commissioned to preach this gospel, but Paul is also a humble slave 
who sees himself as totally submitted to his master. Paul is a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus. He sees himself and his life as under the authority of Christ Jesus. He has been purchased by Jesus. And his sole purpose and goal is to please the Lord Jesus. That's what he means when he says he's a servant of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, It is but a little thing that as our Lord has bought us with the price of His own blood, that we should be His servants. He says the apostles frequently call themselves bond slaves of Christ. The early saints delighted to count themselves Christ's absolute property, bought by Him, owned by Him, and wholly at His disposal. Is this how you view your life? You see, we open these New Testament letters and we read about how Paul viewed himself. But Paul is an example for us. Is this how we view our life? Who is our master? Who owns us? Who has purchased our allegiance so that we can say we wholly, totally, solely belong to Him? Remember who Paul was. He was a violent persecutor of the church of Jesus. Paul gave approval to the killing of Christians. And so, how did this church persecutor and violent murderer come to write the greatest letter ever written? The answer to that question is found in this last phrase of verse 1. The Gospel of God. Paul has been transformed by the Gospel of God and set apart for this gospel so that he sees his life and his mission and everything that he is as caught up in this gospel of God. All three of these descriptions of Paul in verse 1 highlight what God has done for Paul, not what Paul has done or is doing for God. In saying something about himself, Paul is proclaiming the power of the gospel that is from God. Paul is declaring right here at the beginning of this letter that he didn't make up or invent this gospel that he's going to declare in this letter. The gospel didn't originate with Paul. He didn't make it up. It is God's gospel. In fact, let me say this clearly from the beginning of our study of the book of Romans. God is the most important word in the book of Romans. We will encounter a lot of really significant words as we study this book, but none are more central, none are more frequent than God. Everything Paul says in this book, he, cre- he communicates through the lens of the Creator God who owns this gospel. Romans is about the gospel of God. God owns it and God created it. Listen, we don't get to define the gospel however we want. We don't get to make the gospel somehow less offensive to rebellious people. We don't get to adjust the gospel. We don't get to adjust the truth. It is the gospel of God. God gets to define the gospel because it is His. It originates with Him and He owns it, which, which by the way, reveals the tremendous love of our God, does it not? God created and implemented and proclaimed the good news to us. The good news doesn't start with us. 
It starts with God. God is the offended party in the Gospel. Our sins are against God. And God is the one who enacted this plan to redeem sinners through the sacrifice of His Son. Oh, how this phrase, Gospel of God, reveals the heartbeat of our God. The love of God for His people to redeem His chosen people. Listen, God was not reluctant or hesitant to agree to someone else's idea for good news. God didn't say, okay, if we've got to figure out a way to save these sinners, then I guess I'll go along with it. No, it originated with Him. He made it up. God happily planned and designed the redemption of sinners. It, it is His. It is His gospel. It originates with Him. It belongs to Him. He owns it. And understanding that from the very beginning will help us study the book of Romans and will help us to see clearly and will help us to think deeply and to embrace this gospel faithfully. Listen, we're going to encounter some difficult teaching in the book of Romans. We're going to encounter some teaching that's going to, our tendency is going to be, mm, I wouldn't quite say it that way. I, I wouldn't have made it that way if it were me. I, I would have it this way. It's all of our sinful tendency to do that. But from the very beginning, we've got to understand, it's God's truth. It's God's gospel. Our job is to submit to it. Our job is to embrace it as it is. And so it originates with God. It, it belongs to God. It is His gospel. Paul proclaims this from the very first verse. The second truth that I want you to see about the gospel is this. The gospel is promised in the Holy Scriptures. The Gospel is promised in the Holy Scriptures. So in verse 2, Paul says that the Gospel was promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So for Paul, the Holy Scriptures are what we know as the Old Testament. And so one of the first things Paul makes sure that we understand, that we know, is that the Gospel of God is not new. Paul is not declaring a new gospel. It is a gospel that was promised beforehand. Now, throughout the book of Romans, Paul quotes from and references passages from the Old Testament to show that God's gospel has already been declared in the authoritative Word of God. This means that there's continuity between the Old and New Testaments. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. God's gospel is proclaimed from the beginning, beforehand, throughout the Scriptures. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament, and God always keeps His promises. And notice how verse 2 teaches about the inspiration and authority of the Scriptures. God spoke to His prophets. His prophets declared His Word and wrote down His promises in a book. Paul says that book is holy. That is, the Scriptures are set apart and unique among all other books. There is no other book like the Bible. It is holy. It is pure. It is set apart. It might seem a bit old-fashioned to us to call the Bible the Holy Bible, but I'm glad that most translations still print that on the cover or on the spine of the Bible because it's what we believe about the Bible. It is the Holy Bible. The Scriptures are holy. They are from the Holy God and therefore they are unique and they are to be treasured as holy. 
And the main reason it is holy is because it declares the most important message in all the world. It declares the gospel of God. Church family, this truth should cause us to love and cherish the Scriptures with great zeal. We should consume God's Word vigorously because this is where our God speaks. He speaks through His Word. He speaks through His holy Scriptures. And so Paul says the Gospel of God is not new. It was promised beforehand. Well, the third truth, the middle truth of these five, and the most important truth about the Gospel that we'll see this morning, Paul says, number three, the Gospel's heart and substance is Jesus the Christ. And whenever we go to say something is the heart and substance of something, we're treading on dangerous ground. We're saying we can boil it down. We're saying we can pinpoint what is the most important thing about that thing. And when we say we know what the heart and substance of the gospel of God is, we are, we are really on thin ice here. Can we know what the heart and substance of the truth of God's gospel is? Well, Paul says, yes, we can in verse 3. Paul says this gospel, notice, is concerning His Son. The gospel of God is concerning His Son. The good news from God is about the Son of God. Jesus is the content of the gospel. Jesus is the center of the good news. And so we cannot answer the question, what is the good news, without speaking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If someone asks you, what is the gospel, and you start with you, you've missed the gospel. The gospel is not primarily about us. Does it impact us? Absolutely. But is it about us? No. Its heart and substance is Jesus the Christ. And so in this greeting, verses 3 and 4, Paul highlights some essential truths about Jesus, about God's only Son. In verse 3, notice he says, He was descended from David according to the flesh. Now this phrase is loaded with truth about the incarnation of Jesus. The eternally existing Son of God took on flesh and became a man. Remember just a few weeks ago, we learned about the hypostatic union of Jesus. Fully God, fully man in one person. Well, he says here that the eternal Son of God humbled Himself and notice, became a descendant of David. Now, why does Paul say something about Jesus' earthly lineage here? Why didn't he just say He became a man? Why highlight the fact that He was descended from David? Well, we read earlier in the service that glorious prophecy from 2 Samuel 7 where God promised David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. Listen, Solomon was not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Jesus was. Jesus was born into the line of David as a descendant of David in order to fulfill that promise, in order to be the Messiah King who was declared who was promised. This is why Paul calls Him Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. 
It means anointed one. Jesus is the one promised to sit on the throne who would be the Messiah Savior to rescue His people. But Jesus wasn't the Messiah Savior that everyone thought He would be. He didn't come in splendor and glory like Solomon. Instead of glory and majesty, He came in lowliness and meekness. Instead of coming to rule and reign, Jesus came the first time to suffer and die. In fact, notice Paul implies the death of Jesus on the cross between verses 3 and 4. Verse 4 mentions the powerful resurrection of Jesus. Well, it's obvious that you have to die before you can be resurrected. And so Jesus is the promised Messiah according to the flesh, in His flesh, in His humanity. He was descended from David to fulfill those promises. And in verse 4, Paul says He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Indeed, he says, He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you have to understand that verse 4 is not teaching that Jesus became the Son of God when He was resurrected. That's not what he's saying. Jesus has always been the Son of God. Paul is saying in the resurrection, a declaration was made. When Jesus was raised, it demonstrated to the whole world that He is in fact the Son of God in power. In other words, He's no longer in His lowly, earthly, humble state. He is now exalted to the right hand of God in power and He will come with the rod of iron to rule forever when He comes again. And notice that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. I think this is simply a reference to the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. Paul is pointing to the doctrine of the Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in this beautiful Gospel. Our infinite, holy, triune God is over and through and in and for this good news that has Jesus at the center. And the resurrection of Jesus ushered in the age of the Spirit where Jesus has now promised that the Spirit will be with His people to empower us to do even greater works than He did. Jesus is the Son of David according to the flesh. And He is the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. He is the God-man. And He is the heart and the center of the good news that Paul proclaims. The good news that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The eternal Son of God took on a human nature in actual history. Like he was born with the lineage. He was born as a descendant. He suffered and died on the cross to pay for our sins. And He was resurrected in power according to the Spirit of holiness. So that He is now the Lord. The Lord of lords. The Lord of all. The Lord of your and my life. Jesus is the heart and substance of the Gospel. The good news, Paul says, is concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, much more could be said about Jesus as the substance and content and center of the gospel, but let's see the next truth, in the, the fourth truth about the gospel that Paul gives us. Number four, the gospel's goal is the glory of Jesus among all the nations. The gospel's goal is the glory of Jesus among the nations. Notice verse 5. Paul says, Through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, that is, Jesus' name, among all the nations. So here's the purpose, Paul says, of the gospel that he proclaims. The purpose is the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus among all nations. So the gospel's goal, its design, could not be more all-encompassing. That every nation, that all people groups trust and obey Jesus so that Jesus would be famous among all peoples. Many, I think, miss the fact that Romans is a missionary letter. Paul states this missionary purpose multiple times throughout the book of Romans. As you read through it, look for Paul's sight set on the nations, knowing and praising Jesus. In fact, in Romans 15.20, he says it like this. He says, My ambition is to preach the gospel not among those who already know Jesus, but among those who have never heard this glorious news. Paul writes Romans to get the Romans on board with this goal, with this purpose for the Gospel. We're going to see this again next week, God willing, and we'll see it in more detail as we move through it. The goal of the Gospel is the fame of Jesus through the obedience of faith. I love this phrase that Paul, I think, coins, the obedience of faith. I think this phrase is simply pointing to the fact that when we believe, we obey. Amen. Obedience springs from faith in Jesus. Our obedience is not the ground of our salvation, not the ground of our being saved, but it is the fruit of our trusting in Jesus. Faith is the root. Faith is the, the, the root of our salvation, and obedience is the fruit of our salvation, so that if we trust Jesus, it will be evident in how we live our lives. It will be evident in how we obey Jesus, which is why the whole book of Romans is designed the way that it is. Chapters 1 through 12 are all doctrine. Chapters 1 through 11, all doctrine, all theology about the gospel, about how it fits into God's plan of salvation. And then chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore. Because all of this is true, Therefore, this is the kind of person you ought to be. And he spends the last chapters explaining how the gospel ought to impact the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the world, the way we offer ourselves as offering to our God. If we trust Jesus, we will obey Jesus. And when we trust and obey Jesus, it commends Jesus as the valuable treasure that He is. Which is why the response every time we hear the Gospel, should be faith in Jesus that fuels obedience to Jesus. And so the goal 
of the gospel is that Jesus' name would be known, would be praised among all people, that He would get the glory that He alone is due. This is what Paul is aiming at in proclaiming this gospel. And friends, we know God's purposes are unstoppable. God will do what He has said He will do. And so I encourage you, I encourage myself now, get on board with what God is doing to proclaim the name of Jesus among the nations or you will waste your life. Get on board with what God's doing or you'll waste your life. The fifth and the final truth that I want you to see about the gospel from this introduction is this. The gospel's effect is glorious transformation. The gospel's effect is glorious transformation. And so having declared the grand scope of the gospel in verse 5, Paul then ends this greeting by telling the Romans how they fit in. How do these ordinary, average citizens of Rome who are in this house church reading this letter from Paul, how do they fit in to the grand plan of God for His gospel? Notice verses 6 and 7. Notice the phrase at the beginning of verse 6, including you. In fact, my, the Bible that I preach out of and that I read out of mostly through the week, I don't usually write in it. Uh, I have another Bible that I do writing and stuff in, but I don't usually write in it, but I underline that phrase. As I was reading it just over and over and over again, it just struck me that Paul wanted to say to these average ordinary Christians, all of this grand gospel, all of this plan of God, all of this promised gospel, it includes you. It includes you. That, that blacksmith, that, that carpenter, that plumber, that teacher, it, it includes you, Paul says. I love this phrase. If you're trusting in Jesus, the gospel's effect includes you. The gospel radically transforms those who believe. And notice how Paul then lists some of the ways the gospel transforms. Now, we could mention how it transformed Paul again from persecutor to proclaimer of the gospel, but Paul focuses on how it's transformed them. Look at it. But look at all these things he says about the Roman Christians. He says, they're called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to spend the bulk of these first three chapters describing the utter sinfulness of all people both Jews and Gentiles. There's none good, none deserving of grace. And yet, he says we have been called to belong to Jesus. What, what a gift this is. Like What a transformation would happen in our lives if we embrace this. That we are called to belong to Christ. Who do you belong to? To whom do you belong? If you're in Christ, you've been called out of the darkness, you've been called out of the depravity to belong to Jesus. In verse 7, Paul says he's writing to those in Rome who are loved by God. To be loved by God is breathtakingly precious. We know that God loves, but do we know that we are loved by God in Jesus? We are called to belong to Jesus. We are loved by God. In verse 7, notice we are called to be saints. <laughs> we are not saints in practice, we are sinners. But we are called by God to be saints in His presence, which reminds us of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that His righteousness is credited to our accounts. 
And then notice Paul gives the standard greeting at the end of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we need. This is what will transform us. Grace and peace from God. This is exactly what God gives us in His Gospel. Grace and peace. What a Gospel this is. What good news for those of us who find ourselves in need of forgiveness and rescue. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes in all the world. Do you need this Gospel? Do you need this grace and this peace from God today? Of course you do. In Jesus, there is grace to cover your sins. And there is peace with God forever. As we conclude, I want you to notice something in this opening greeting that we're going to see again and again. In fact, you might call this one of the main themes that we're going to pound again and again and again because we forget this so often. Notice from this introduction that Christians need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to Christians who have been called to belong to Jesus. And what does he write? He writes a letter explaining and exulting in the gospel because it's what these loved by God saints need to hear. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says it as clearly as he possibly could. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Friends, the gospel's not just for unbelievers. It is for unbelievers. Again, this is a missionary letter. Paul wants to go where Christ hasn't been named. He wants to declare that gospel and build on no other foundation. But friends, the gospel is also for believers. It's for Christians. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. We never move on to bigger and better things. We only grow deeper into an understanding of and affection for the gospel. This is how God changes us. This is how we are transformed as we see and embrace the gospel concerning His Son. That we are called by God to belong to Christ. That we are loved by God in Jesus. That we are called to be saints. That we have grace and peace from our God. And so, believers, church family, embrace the gospel afresh this morning. Let it wash over you with all of its power to transform and to change you, to free you from whatever it is that entangles you today. The good news, the great news that originates with God, that God owns and has given to us, that was promised long ago in the Holy Scriptures, is concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, descended from David, who willingly died on the cross for our sins and was shown to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And this Jesus deserves glory and honor from you and from all people groups in all the world. And when you submit yourself to this Gospel, you will be transformed into one called by God, loved by God, in the grace and peace that come only from God. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray that you would help us this morning to embrace your gospel, to embrace your good news concerning your Son, that we might be transformed into one degree of glory to another. 
that we might see and behold the glory of Jesus and be transformed, that the veil might be lifted, that we would shine forth the beauty, majesty, and glory of our Savior. What a God you are. You are awesome, God. You're a great God who deserves all honor and all glory for all these good things that we experience because of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for calling him to proclaim the gospel of God. We pray that you would help us to embrace it and to respond with faith and obedience. Oh God, do your work in your people in this moment. We pray you do it in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.